Bibles and flip over just a few pages to your left to the book of Philippians. That is the next letter that we're going to be starting. Philippians is just a few pages to your left. Philippians chapter 1. And I'm glad to be back in the pulpit this morning. Thankful to have had the time to study this letter. And uh, just to be honest with you, as I did study this letter, I was struck over and over and over again at the timeliness of this letter. Now, all of God's Word is most certainly relevant, isn't it? Every letter, every dot, every period is relevant at all times for all people in every age and generation, generation and so on and so on. But there's some times where God blesses us uniquely in our specific context or circumstance, and that living and active Word of His becomes especially timely, where just about every single word and every paragraph most certainly has clear application for our lives. The more I studied Philippians, the more I realized that clear application for our lives at every turn throughout this brief little letter. I picked this letter little less than a year ago and had no idea where we would be, obviously, at this point in time in our lives as individuals and as a church. But I can tell you, this letter was chosen by God for us to work through. Let me highlight just a few of the themes of the letter before we get into the letter. I thought the best way to uh, work through the introduction of this letter and the next several, however long it takes to get through it, would be to work through the introduction of Paul himself in verses 1 and 2 of Philippians 1. But before I do, let me highlight just a few of the key themes in this letter. And the first one that we'll see most evidently and quickly in chapter 1 that carries a carries itself throughout the rest of the entire letter, is the gospel. Paul is enamored with the gospel. He loves the gospel. He treasures the gospel. And he wants to proclaim the gospel. All of his life and his relationship with these believers centers around, is built upon, and circumferenced in the gospel. The perfect life of Christ. In fact, Paul in chapter 2 is going to give us one of the Christological passages. One of the four Christological passages that help us define who Jesus is in great detail, great clarity, and he's going to highlight the incarnation of Christ. That Jesus himself, though all glorious, came and took on what? Human flesh. And became like us. And became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The gospel is all throughout this letter. And he's going to talk about Christ living that perfect life. He's going to talk about Christ giving Himself on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He's going to talk about the resurrection of Christ from the dead so that we might have new life in Him and a hope in Him and be new citizens of a new country. He's going to talk about the return of Christ and living in light of heaven because of the return of Christ. Another major theme in this letter, many of you will know this one, it is joy, specifically joy in Christ. Joy in Christ regardless of our circumstances. And don't we need joy in our lives, right? We're all plagued by something or another. And we live in a polarized world where everybody is labeled as something whether they like it or not. And there's opposition at every corner. God's people need joy. This deep down abiding internal at the core joy to sustain us and guide us, to live by and keep us up and encourage us and challenge us and bear us up when we're weak and weary and falling and failing. And Paul's going to take us to that joy and he's going to say, you can have joy in Christ regardless of your circumstances. 
In fact, we'll talk about it even a little this morning. Paul's in prison when he writes this letter. And yet, even in prison, he's going to reference joy or rejoicing in the Lord at least 16 times in this brief letter. He's going to talk to us about having the strength to be a clear gospel witness. He's going to tell us the importance of embracing and valuing and protecting and defending and cherishing Christian community, specifically as a part of our gospel witness. One of his favorite words in the first chapter will be the word partnership. He puts emphasis on the word partnership. Connected to that, he'll tell this church, and by extension, he'll tell us to resist every form of division in our local church and see it as destruction, destructive. He's going to tell us individually and corporately to embrace humility. In fact, he says, count others more significant than yourselves. That's a radical view. A radical way of living. He's going to call us to cast off this worldly life and to live in light of heaven. In fact, he's going to go directly at our country of origin as he did with these uh, Philippian Christians. And he's going to say, it doesn't matter what country you are of. You are a citizen of heaven first and foremost. He's going to tell us that it's better to serve Christ and serve each other than to serve ourselves. And the list goes on and on and on and on. It's a letter that is packed full of timely instruction, timely encouragement, and timely challenge for our daily living as Christians. Not just so that we'll be better people, Not just so that we'll have better morals. But why does Paul care about the way that you and I live? That we might bear up the name of Christ in a more godly, honoring way. So he'll challenge us. He'll challenge our perspectives. The way we view the world around us. He'll realign our priorities. If our eyes have been shifted in the wrong direction, he'll shift them back to Christ. He'll remind us of what's important in this life. He'll help us set our own lives and our church in the proper direction of genuine Christian living. He writes this letter to address some issues in the church. This letter is one of Paul's most um, encouraging personal letters. In fact, maybe um, Timothy's letters are more personal than this, but, but not many others. This is a very personal letter. It's chocked full of terms of endearment. Paul loves these people and it's very evident these people love Paul. Their relationship goes back years. And yet, as healthy and as loving as this church is, it suffers. It suffers from issues of disunity. And so Paul will write and address their disunity. He's going to write and address their suffering for Christ. He's going to write and address the opposition that they're enduring and will endure. Essentially, the letter is largely a thank you letter. You and I don't write four chapters when we write thank you letters. Paul does. In chapter 4, he'll tell us why it's a thank you letter. They have graciously met his needs. Though he's learned to be content in all things, they have sent him supplies and blessed him once and again through their servant Epaphroditus. And he's writing to say thank you. He's writing to report the advance of the gospel. Apparently, because of Paul's imprisonment, the gospel has now spread through the household of Caesar himself. 
He's writing to call them to unity so that they might better display the gospel in a very fallen city. He's writing to remind them that Jesus is where their eyes and their attention needs to be fixed, especially if they want things like joy, grace, peace, unity, perseverance. And we could keep going on, church. This letter is going to be immensely beneficial if we will take the time to study it and submit ourselves to it. God will bless us with it. Let's look at the first two verses of the letter. Paul introduces himself. And this might be a good way to introduce the entire letter and what Paul's going to be getting at. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. He writes and he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very, very common and uncommon greeting. Uh, it's common in its structure and its style. Sometimes people look at Paul's writing and they think he's uh, egotistical because he lists himself first. Actually, he's very practical. Uh, Greek letters at the time were structured this way. All Greek letters followed the same formula. Author, recipient, greeting, or wish. Paul follows that same formula. Uh, it's kind of backwards the way that we do it. We sign our names at the end of a letter, and all of us open the letter, we cheat, and we look to see who it's from before we actually read the letter. In Greek, you didn't have to worry about that. The author is the first name, first person mentioned. That's what Paul's doing here. But it's an entirely uncommon greeting in the sense that the content is drastically different. Paul may follow the same customary, customary structure of his time, but everything about him is distinctly Christian. Furthermore, this is a one-of-a-kind greeting of Paul himself. No other letter of Paul's begins this way. He focuses on things that are different. He writes in things that are different. He mentions things that are different. First, starting with Paul and Timothy himself. Now, it's not uncommon for Paul to mention somebody else with him. Usually, he'll write and he'll say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And then many times he says, Timothy and Timothy are brother. What's unique about this introduction is the key word to the whole introduction and actually, furthermore, to the whole letter. It's the title that he applies to both Timothy and himself. Now first, let's just clarify a few things. Paul and Timothy aren't technically co-authors. Um, anytime Paul writes another author's name at the beginning, it's usually because either one, they're just present with him, or two, they're the actual one writing down what Paul's saying. And that could be true for Timothy here. Obviously, Timothy's with him, and not just with him presently, physically, he's with him in what he's writing. I, I agree with what Paul's saying. Also, Timothy was with Paul when this church was started, so likely this church wants to hear from Timothy. But chapter 2, Paul tells us, eventually I'm going to send Timothy to you. And he's a representative author. Which means he knows what I'm writing and he understands what I'm writing. And if you're confused, he's going to explain it to you. The letter itself is actually written by the Apostle Paul. And together, he says, we are servants of Christ Jesus. The only time he uses one title to refer to himself and the other representative author. Now, if your Bible has footnotes, it should have a footnote by the word servants. Because servant is the 
gentle way of translating the word. The literal translation is slave. We are slaves of Christ Jesus. It's the better translation. Bond slave is what your Bible might say. The reason it's the better translation is because of the distinction between servant and slave in the time of Philippi. In this Roman city, a servant was an individual that was most likely, most commonly hired out like a, like a common day laborer. A servant could perhaps go to work and go back home at the end. A servant was hired out for labor. When they completed their job, they were allowed to go find another job. A servant was allowed to have possessions, maybe even own a home, own several other things, take care of themselves. In other words, they had a measure of freedom as servants. A slave did not have that. A slave in the time of Philippi, in the time of Paul's writing, had no possessions. A servant may have some rights according to the Roman law, but a slave had no rights. A slave was the property of their master. A slave was totally dependent on their master. They were dependent on their master to eat. They were dependent on their master to have clothing. They were dependent upon their master to have bedding. And Paul says, very intentionally, Timothy and I are full-on slaves of Jesus. We have no existence and no identity apart from Him. We have no occupation without Him. We have no meaning or purpose without Him. No identity without Him. We are entirely, totally, completely, full-on dependent on Jesus. There's a man who wrote a commentary on this passage. His name is Dennis Johnson. He writes this about this word. He says, Those who Jesus saves, He also enslaves. Because that's what Paul's getting at here. It's not just Timothy and I who are slaves of Christ Jesus. All Christians are to be slaves of Christ Jesus. We are all now bought and paid for by the Lord. We belong to Him. Paul and Timothy are just saying they're living proof of that. Another Bible scholar, Walter Hansen, writes it like this. He says, Paul's reasoning was simple. If Christ is our Lord, then we are His slaves. But for Christians, we understand that that's not a negative thing, is it? That's a great and glorious and good thing, isn't it? Because there is no master quite like Jesus. There is no Lord like our Lord. No master as good as Him. As generous as Him. As kind as Him. As understanding or warm or gentle or loving as our Master. We are slaves to the highest degree because our Master is of the highest degree. We are the slaves with the greatest benefit and the greatest pleasure and the greatest privilege there is because of who our Master is. In fact, Paul will highlight in this letter, and we can highlight now, something we might call the uh, mysterious dichotomy that only when we're enslaved to Jesus do we actually find freedom. We are people in our country, in our context, who value freedom, aren't we? We're quick to view the world and think about the world in terms of our rights and our privileges and our liberties. 
And so it can be difficult for us to think of freedom in the context of slavery. But for the Christian, there's only one path to freedom. And that's in submitting to Christ as Lord. Only when our lives are given over to Jesus in this unwavering devotion and unwavering dedication do we really experience that abundant life that Christ Himself talked about. We're tempted to go on our own. We're tempted to live by our own standard. We're tempted to make our own way and to do our own thing and make our own decisions and serve and further our own agendas and wills. And we all know the outcome of that and we know it by experience, right? Failure, difficulty, distress, disappointment. Look at all those D words. Only in Christ are we liberated. Do we find joy? Do we find peace? Do we find hope? Do we find grace? Only in devotion to Him. Only in submission to Him. And Paul and Timothy are writing to say, slavery to Jesus is the only reason we have the joy that we have and the circumstances that we have. Because we know our Master is greater than Caesar. Put me in a Roman jail cell. I still serve a greater Master. The foundation for joy is submission to Christ. Joy will not exist in any lasting way if you're not first submitting to Christ. As I said, Paul is in prison when he writes this letter. Some think he might, thinks, think he, he might be in prison in Ephesus. That's a real possibility. I think he's in prison in Rome. I think he's awaiting his appeal to Caesar that we see at the end of Acts. I think he's been imprisoned for several years by the time he writes this letter to the Philippian church. And yet, as I said earlier, 16 different times does he talk about rejoicing in the Lord or possessing joy in the Lord or having joy just in general. How? How does he have such joy in the midst of such dire circumstances? We face far fewer trials and troubles, far easier trials and troubles, and we do not possess joy. We do not follow James's advice to count all trials as, as a blessing, as joy. And yet here the Apostle does. And why? Why does he do that? How does he do that? He's telling us in his introduction, only because I am first and foremost a slave. It's my relationship to Jesus. That primarily is serving Him do I actually find myself and find the joy that's sustaining me? I remember reading um, part of Frederick Douglass's autobiography. Uh, most of you might know his name. If you don't know his name or his story, that's okay. He was uh, living in the 1800s. Frederick Douglass was an escaped slave from the Maryland area. He made his way up to New Jersey and New York and became a terrific orator, a speaker, a terrific writer. It was very rare for an African American at that time to be able to speak so eloquently and read and write, but he did. And he became a, a leader in the abolition movement for abolishing slavery and things of that nature. He writes in his autobiography of the horrors of American slavery that he grew up under before he escaped. Witnessing things to his brothers and his sisters and his mom and his dad and his friends and his aunts and his uncles that uh, frankly no person should ever have to witness. And in that autobiography, he writes something very strange that is almost inexplicable. 
he says it was not uncommon for differing groups of slaves from neighboring plantations or properties or masters to fight each other. And not because they were made to, but because they chose to fight each other. And he tells us the reason why they chose to fight each other. They fought to defend the honor and reputation and wealth of their master. So when they would encounter each other, they would tend to argue with each other. The slaves from this property and this master would argue with the slaves from that property and that master. My master's kinder. My master's gentler. My master's better. My master's more noble. My master's more important. My master's more wealthy. And Douglas tells us why they argued that. He says, because it was bad enough to be a slave, but to be a slave of a poor man was even worse. It was bad enough to be a slave, but to be a slave of a wicked man was even worse. And so they would puff up their master's reputation, even if their master was horrid and wicked. Because they knew, to be a slave, I'm already there, but to be a slave of a poor person, to be the slave of the lowest person, made me the lowest slave that could possibly be. You see, Douglas recognized, and the slaves of his time that he knew, and his family recognized, the only status I have is in relation to my master. And so if he's bad, it reflects on me. If he's good, it reflects on me. I don't want to be the slave of a weak drunkard, I want to be the slave of a wealthy, important person. I thought about Douglas's autobiography as I read Paul's word, slaves of Christ Jesus. Because we too only live in relation to our Master. Our status is only in relation to Christ, isn't it? Our identity is only in relation to Christ. And we defend Christ. But unlike American slavery, our Master doesn't need defending His reputation doesn't need protection. Our Master is gracious, gentle, kind, and loving. Again, this man named Dennis Johnson writes this. He says, Every Master other than Jesus will use you and then discard you. When we realize that we all serve one Master or another, and that other Masters inevitably abuse and fail us, Suddenly we find that there is nothing as liberating as being a slave of King Jesus. He says, the church father Chrysostom commented, quote, One who is a slave of Christ is truly free from sin. If he is truly a slave of Christ, he is not a slave in any other realm. End quote. Our master is good. Our Master is the best Master that there's ever been. Our Master is great and He provides for us and He loves us and He nurtures us and He cares for us and He lavishes good things on us constantly. He upholds us, He sustains us, and He promises never to leave or forsake us, doesn't He? And He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am you may be also. We have a Master who looks out for every detail of our need and our Master, slavery to our Master, is ultimately freedom. Because we've been bought and paid by one who is stronger, more powerful, who's higher, and nobody else, nothing else will ever take control of us. We're property to no one else but Christ. We belong to nothing else but Christ. Death 
has been conquered. Sin has been conquered. This world has been conquered. One day in glory, our flesh will be conquered and we will finally be liberated as Christ's slaves in Christ alone. If you are a slave to Christ, you're a slave to no one and nothing else. So Paul joyfully writes and says, we are slaves of Jesus. Now, the question is, why? Why is being a slave to Christ such freedom? Paul will explain later in this letter in chapter 2 when he likens Jesus to a slave himself. If you look over into chapter 2, he uses the same word to describe Jesus in verse 7. He tells us in verse 7 that Jesus took the form of a servant. And again, the word is better to say He took the form of a slave. Our Master became a slave Himself. And in His slavery, He paid death's price. Took away our penalty. Paid our debt. And was buried in our grave. And in His slavery, He resurrected. Overcoming death. Giving us life in eternity. Our master knows what it means to be a slave. And that makes him the better master. Paul tells us there's freedom in Christ. He will tell us in this letter. There's freedom in Christ. Because through Christ's own slavery, He buys us. And in living with Him, we flourish. So, if you want unity, if you want heaven, if you want joy, if you want peace that surpasses all understanding as he's going to say in this letter, if you want all these things, Paul's going to tell you it comes in relation to Christ. Primarily, you belonging to Him and serving Him. See how quickly this principle takes over Philippians. It is the first descriptive word aside from His name that he uses in the letter, which tells us Paul wants you and I to read the rest of the letter through the lens of slavery to Jesus Christ. And all the glories and all the joy and all the benefit and all the citizenship of heaven and all the peace that surpasses understanding in chapter 4, all the rejoicing that comes at the hand of Christ, none of that makes sense for Paul in this letter apart from this lens by which we are to read it as slaves of Christ Jesus. Next, as is normal, he moves on to the recipients of this letter. And let's run through a few things here that he highlights, and let's isolate these few things. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Let's first take the word saints there. He's not talking about a special class of people. He's talking about all the Christians in the church at Philippi. Saint is the, comes from the same Greek root as holy. And they're used sometimes in the New Testament interchangeably. They don't sound alike, but they're from the same word. So to call someone a saint is to call someone holy, which is to call someone set apart to God. He's writing to those who have been set apart to God. Now this is a remarkable claim to make for these people because they are primarily Gentile people. This church is made up of pagan Gentile people who come from very pagan backgrounds. 
And how do we know that? We know that because we know the founding of this church. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 16. So dutifully flip over in Acts chapter 16 with me. Let's discuss just very, very briefly the founding of this church. Now, it should be said, God starts every church, doesn't He? No church exists without God's will. Um, planters may go and they may work, but a church is only a church when it's blessed and deemed so by the Spirit of God. So God starts every church. But this church starts very supernaturally uniquely. Paul plants a lot of churches in his time as a missionary, but the church at Philippi fell into his lap. Uh, he, he did relatively very little to start this church. It starts miraculously by God's design. So in the first part of Acts 16, verses 1 through 5, we find Timothy join up with Paul and Silas in ministry. He's the new addition to the ministry team. By the time we get to verses 6 through 10, we find that Paul and Silas and now Timothy, they're trying to go and do ministry in all these places, but the Lord keeps shutting the door on them. He keeps preventing them to go from going until, in verse 9, Paul has a vision in the night. And there's a man of Macedonia, which Philippi is located in, standing there in Paul's vision, verse 9, urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding or deducing that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. God sets the compass in that direction. He closes off and burns down every other bridge so that the only path leads straight to Philippi. So they do a whole bunch of journeying and they get there. And when they get there, they do what they normally do, customarily do, and they look for the synagogue. Only there's a problem. In Philippi, there is no synagogue. Now, in later, after this time, rabbinical writings, the standard was you had to have at least 10 Jewish men present in the city to form a synagogue. So presumably, and we can safely presume that that was the case here at the time, there's not 10 Jewish men to form a synagogue. So that's why we can say most likely most of the church is filled with former pagan Gentiles. Us not practicing Jewish people. And so, Paul and Silas and Timothy decide now, let's go out to this river and look for somebody to meet with, some people to interact with, and they find women next to the river who are praying. And in verse 14, there's this very beautiful verse. If you like to make signs, make a sign that has this verse on it, hang it in your home. One of the women who heard them preaching the gospel, was named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now that description means she adhered to the Jewish God, that she believed there was only one God, but she likely didn't pick up Jewish customs uh, like the other things, like ceremonies, uh, dietary laws, things of that nature. She was, your Bible might say, a God-fearer. She was a worshiper of God. And then notice what it says next. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And then after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged them, come home to my house and stay and do ministry and serve and, and on and on and on and on. Presumably, by the time Paul writes Philippians, the church may very well still be meeting in Lydia's house. Now, what's unique about verse 15 is it's, 
extraordinary description and it's ordinary description. It's ordinary because what's true for Lydia is true for every Christian, right? We don't come to God on our own. God has to quicken and awaken the dead man's soul. Dead people don't do anything but lay there. God wakes us up. He opened her heart just like He opens our hearts. But it's the description that Luke injects right here in the whole surrounding context of this chapter that makes it pointedly perfect. See, it might be true for all of us, but this is the only time such a description is used of a believer coming to faith in the New Testament. A principle is certainly there, but the description is rare. And in the context of all these miracles taking place in chapter 16, Luke is trying to make it very clear God is doing something very rare, special, miraculous here. He awakens all our hearts, but the description of Lydia here is to say He's uniquely intervening in this situation. Now Lydia is a person that's a merchant. She's a self, probably self-made woman. She's selling purple things which are rare and expensive. She's making her own income. She likely has a rather large house for the time because of her status as a seller of purple goods. And the church ends up meeting there for some time. So Lydia's conversion. First we have this call to Macedonia. Then we have Lydia's conversion. Then while Paul and Silas are there, they encounter this woman who's demon-possessed. And you guys know this story. She's following them, uh, and she's crying out, these guys know the way of salvation. They serve Jesus, on and on and on. And she was a slave, there's the word again, of her masters, and they were using her for fortune-telling to make money. Uh, Come to our demon-possessed slave girl, she'll tell you your fortune, do some tricks for you, you pay us, and everybody's happy. Paul gets annoyed with it, and he casts the demon out. And that lands him and Silas in prison. So that's the third miraculous thing. He delivers a woman from a demon. Now they're in prison. And all of a sudden, what happens? They've been beaten. They're singing hymns, which might be a miracle in and of itself. And an earthquake happens. And this earthquake just somehow or another opens all the prison doors and unfastens all the stocks and all the chains so that this Familiar character comes rushing in. In fact, if you look in verse 29, this Philippian jailer calls for lights, rushes in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out. And he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? See, he was going to kill himself because he was a Roman guard and he knew what would happen if he let all the prisoners escape. He would be executed. So let's just take care of it myself. Let's not face the... The fears and the anxiety of waiting. Paul and Silas call to him from the jail cell. He's been listening to their singing of hymns and praises of God. And he is converted. That's miracle number four. So look at what's happened to start this Philippian church. A vision in the night. An intervention by God into the heart of a seller of purple goods who has a house big enough to let the church meet in the conversion of a Philippian jailer, the liberation of a demon-possessed woman. And what's even more telling about all of these people is they're likely sitting in the church barring death or moving. They're likely sitting in the church when this letter is being read by Paul some 12 years or so later. And take note of, of this. Here's Lydia 
I remember when I first met Paul. Here's the Philippian jailer. I remember Paul and Silas's backs were bleeding. And they were singing hymns in the prison at night. And maybe even the slave girl who had a demon sitting there. Her whole life completely new because of Christ. They all come from horrible backgrounds, don't they? Lydia was a Gentile making money. The Philippian jailer was a torturer, harsh, probably lived a hard life himself. The slave girl was not only a slave, she was demon-possessed at one point. And yet, Paul uses the same word to describe them all. What is it? Saint. Set apart. And holy. And why is that, church? Because our holiness is not based on our merit or moral achievement. It's based on our relationship to Christ. When we're slaves of Christ, we're also simultaneously saints in Christ. The second word he uses that I want to point out, he actually uses it first, it's the word all, A-L-L. This is very important because Paul's going to write to address disunity in this church. There are several things he's going to highlight throughout the letter, like humble yourselves, count others more significant, serve each other. And in chapter 4, he's going to actually call the people out by name. Uh, I don't think I'm going to adopt this practice just yet, but he did it. And in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Euodia and Syntyche, you guys need to get along. And I want you church leaders to help them. Heal the division and the disunity and unify around Christ together. So Paul unmistakably uses to all the saints. I know there's division. I know there's factions. I know there's petty differences. I know there's issues and conflict. But you are all saints in Christ Jesus. Unmistakable unity here. I have to read to you a portion here from this gentleman, Dennis Johnson, again. Because I think what he has to say here is, Good. He says, when our priorities compete and our preferences clash in the church, we tend to reduce Paul's all to some. We may say to ourselves, I find it easy to serve with some of the saints and give thanks for some of the saints and pray for some of the saints. But there are others. I'm not saying they are not saints, of course, but we rub each other the wrong way. We need to give each other plenty of space. We can't spend too much time together. That's not Paul's attitude, is it? It's all. All of you are saints. All of you are brothers and sisters. All of you make one body. Church, unity is fake when it's only built around like-minded people. Unity is a smoke in glass mirror kind of illusion. When it's only built around people we get along with easily, who think the same way that we do, have the same political views that we do, the same worldviews that we do. Real unity, according to the Scripture, is the uniting around Christ Jesus alone in the midst of all sorts of diversities. Differences of opinion, differences of background, all of us seeking to sharpen each other to Christ's likeness for the sake of the Gospel and their obedience to Christ. If there aren't people that you're spending time with, 
that are hard for you to spend time with, and yet you do so joyfully and lovingly in Christ, that's not real unity. Not in the full supernatural biblical sense. So Paul writes and he says, all of you are saints in Christ Jesus. We should take note also of his source that he highlights. This is the second of the third time he mentions being in Christ Jesus. It's a thing that he's going to pick up around 20 times in this letter. Being in the Lord, in Christ Jesus, from the Lord. He does it three times in these two verses. He says, we're slaves of Christ. You're saints in Christ. And grace and peace comes from Christ. We should highlight who the source is. Unity is only built in Jesus. Bear with me. I haven't done this for five weeks, so let me keep going. We also want to highlight where they're at. Very briefly. They're in a very dark city. Philippi is a Roman colony. We're told that in Acts chapter 16. We know that from history. Philippi is named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip II of Macedonia. Now, after Philip II of Macedonia founds this city, and after Alexander the Great, the Roman Empire shows up, and there's a big battle that eventually takes place there. Octavian is his name. He later becomes Caesar Augustus. And his friend, Mark Antony, fight Cassius and Brutus, Caesar's assassins. And they fight at Philippi. Octavian and Mark Antony win, and Everything is nice and peaceable for a time until Octavian and Mark Antony decide they don't like each other. Then they fight at Philippi. Octavian wins, becomes Caesar, known as Caesar Augustus, and adopts for himself the title of Savior because he brings peace to the Roman Empire. There's no more people vying for attention. After Octavian and Antony get into it, Philippi is classified as a military outpost. All of this has bearing a promise. It's a military outpost, which means it was very common for Roman military generals and officials to retire to Philippi. It was a luxurious kind of life, a luxurious way of living. Uh, They had a fort there, military supplies there, on and on and on and on. So Philippi becomes a massive, massive city, a massive Roman colony that delighted in all things Roman. They prided themselves on all things Roman. They adopted Latin as their official language because that's what Rome had as their official language, though everybody around them spoke Greek. They had Roman customs, Roman architecture, Roman religion, etc., etc., etc. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, that's part of the reason Paul and Silas are imprisoned. Um, Give me just a moment here. Acts chapter 16, they cast out this slave... The demon from the slave girl. And notice what the accusation is for them. They were brought before the magistrates. And the owners of that slave girl said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Everything about them was about being Roman. And chief among that was that they had Roman citizenship. Which not only meant they had certain protections and rights under the law, they were exempt from some very major heavy tax burdens. It was good to be a Roman citizen, and it was even better to be a Roman citizen in Philippi. Philippi eventually became known as Little Rome during the time of Paul. So he's writing and ministering in Little Rome. 
And the people were so priding themselves on their Roman affiliation, on their Roman colony status, their nationalistic identity, that they elevated it to the place of religion itself. It was known as the imperial cult. Where they worshipped Caesar. They had other gods and goddesses dispersed in the city. But worshipping Caesar was the main religion of the day in Philippi. It means something when Paul later in chapter 3 writes and says, by the way, you're citizens of a greater country. He goes right at their nationalistic pride when he says, who cares if you're Romans? You're citizens of Christ. Better to be a slave of Christ than a a citizen of Rome. Better to serve Jesus than to worship Caesar. He writes to these saints who are at Philippi, And though they live in a dark place, and though they live uh, surrounded by opposition, and though they come from a dark city themselves, they are nonetheless saints in Christ. Lights shining in the midst of darkness. Very quickly, Paul highlights also uh, that the overseers and deacons are who he's writing to. Um, He doesn't do this anywhere else. And it's not extremely clear why he mentions them. I think for three reasons he mentions them. One, to highlight that Ephesus is an established church because these are the two offices of of the church. The overseer is the same as a pastor or an elder or a bishop. They are tasked with uh, overseeing and directing the church. I once read an article that said churches love to give pastors responsibility but no authority to meet that responsibility. That wasn't true for biblical eldership. They carried not only the serious responsibility, but very serious authority. Decision-making power fell straight into their hands. By the way, every time elders are mentioned, they're mentioned in the plural. But he also writes to the deacons. Deacon is the same word as servant. And literally, at its most basic, it means a waiter of tables. Harkens back to Acts chapter 6, in my opinion. Why does Paul mention them? Well, I think one, again, to say this is an established church. A healthy church only exists if the two offices are functioning as they're supposed to by God's design. Two, I think he writes to say, you guys are a part of the church. You're not separate from the church, and yet you are separate from the church because you oversee the church and serve the church, but you're still part of the church. And three, I think he writes to say, you're the solution to some of the issues that the church is facing. You guys need to Flesh out this letter. Keep it going. Make sure it's obeyed. In verse 2, he highlights the wish and the desire for this church that they would have grace and that they would have peace. These two themes that undergird the entire letter. This isn't saving grace. He's already called them saints. This is God's special favor. Grace to enable them, as Doug mentioned last week from Titus chapter 2, verses 11-14. through 14. Grace to enable them to serve God and become like God and Christ-like in their character and their attitude and their heart. Paul says, I want you to have this grace. I want you to exist in this grace. I want you to have this peace. Peace that comes from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Christ is mentioned. The most important thing at this point to highlight is that In these two verses, Christ Jesus is mentioned three times. He is the central figure of this letter. And Paul's calling us to be slaves of Christ who live and exist as saints 
together in unity, even if we're in a dark place like Philippi, resting in the grace and peace that comes from our Lord. This letter is going to be a blessing. But it's only a blessing if we submit ourselves to Christ. It's only a blessing if we see ourselves as slaves. It's only a blessing if we heed its instruction to be unified around Christ. To live as saints in a fallen world. To shine as lights even in the midst of dark secular towns. If we realize those foundational truths, grace and peace will emerge from this letter by the working of Christ and will bless us. Father, I thank You for the attention of Your people here this morning, willing to sit and listen, uh, even though we've gone past time. I pray that You'd bless them for that. I pray that our attention honored You, and I ask Your blessing on this letter as we begin to walk through it as a church. Would You open it up to us, make it known to us, shape us by it, help us to be brought into a godly way of living and viewing this world. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.